everybody, welcome to Full Metal Pod. I'm Jason. And I'm Jimmy. I might sound a little different this week. I don't know. Uh, I can't really hear myself, but I'm recording with like bare bones stuff because I, uh, I recently moved and I don't have my desk and like my entire computer set up ready. So I'm just kind of like doing the best I can with this. No worries though. Uh, we'll still get through this episode together and be back normal next week. Uh, but that's, that's pretty much how my week's been. How about yours, Jimmy? Well, pretty uneventful week. Uh, didn't do much. Kind of just relaxed, which uh, I think is like the best kind of week. If you can just go to work and then come home and chill. I think uh, that's like most rewarding. Yeah, not a lot of like crazy stuff. That's that's usually nice if it's especially like if you have a lot of craziness going on from day to day. Uh, if you just have like a day where things just go smoothly and kind of you know, on a relaxed manner, that's like a win-win-win for me. So I get where you're coming from. I did watch uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. I think that's what the movie's called. It is great. Uh, if you, I know times are tough for everyone. So if you have Disney Plus and you have the thirty. Uh, I think it was like 34 or 32 attacks. It's worth it if you can get a couple of your friends together or some family. I loved the movie. It, it was a su- pleasant surprise. Same. I thoroughly enjoyed it when I watched it. I caught it, uh, not the day it released, but like two days after, like that weekend. I went ahead and bought it and watched it just, you know, because I heard good things about it. And for the most part, Disney doesn't really have too many misses when it comes to animated features. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot and see what I think. And yeah, just like you, I thought it was great. Oh, yeah. I def- I laughed. I uh, got emotional. It gets emotional at some point. It's, it's classic Disney. Um, and I'm just going to let everyone know, it, it does not have any songs in it. There's no musical numbers. But don't worry, it still holds up. Yeah, I remember reading about that. That it, it, uh, I already know watching it, it didn't have musical numbers, but apparently there's only been one other Disney animated feature that has not had a musical number in it. And I don't even know if... A, well, can you guess which one it is? I don't even know if a lot of people remember this being a movie. A Disney animated movie that has no musical numbers? Mm-hmm. That man, that's a tough. It, what about Fox and the Hound? Nope, that one did have. No, a few. I think there's a musical yeah. number. Oh, then I do not know. The Black Cauldron. Oh yeah, I know of the movie. I don't think I've ever seen it. But oh, man, interesting. Yeah, I've heard about it. I've never seen it myself. It definitely seems like it's one of those. Um, What's the film? I'm, what's the name I'm looking for? It's definitely one of those. Uh, uh, it's like the black sheep of the Disney family because it's probably one of the lowest rated uh, main release Disney films out there. Now, granted, like you can go and look at some of those direct to DVD or direct to video versions of films like Jafar 8 or, or Aladdin 3 or whatever. I like the. Uh, uh, the the South uh, not South Park but Family Guy did a parody a while ago about all the crazy D- 
Disney sequels and they're like uh, Aladdin 4, J- Jafar might need glasses and it shows Jafar hanging out at the optometrist getting his eyes checked. So, yeah, you know, there's those those weird sequels usually don't do too great, but all the mainline stuff usually does well, except for Black Cauldron. That, that's an old film that most people forget ever existed. Oh, wow. I wonder if it's on Disney Plus. Maybe I'll check it out. It'd be funny if it wasn't. Like, even Disney wants you to forget that it ever existed. I do think, I wish I could gather, like, a whole bunch of people on Reddit and be like, let's all watch this obscure Disney movie on Disney Plus just to make it spike up really high mm-hmm. to kind of throw Disney off and be like, why is everyone watching Black Cauldron all of a sudden? Yep. I just checked. It is not on Disney Plus. You know, what's funny, we're talking about bad movies. Before we jumped on here to record, I was watching a Watch Mojo video on YouTube, and they were talking about the worst movies uh, pretty much like of every year from 2000 to 2020. And it was fun. Like, I was about half. So, like, all the, a lot of the movies from the 2000s that were labeled the worst movie I actually saw. And then very few from the 2010s I actually saw, but I think there are one or two in there that I was like, oh, yeah, I saw that. I can't uh, can't deny. But, yeah, like, they had, like, Dragon Ball Evolution, and they had uh, they had Gaudi. I think that's the only one I actually saw from the 2010s, uh, and it was terrible. And, yeah, it was, it was just funny going through that list of all uh, the worst movies and, like, yeah, I saw that. I, I could see why it would be a worst movie. Uh, I love. Uh, I listen to this other podcast called "How Did This Get Made" uh, with Paul Shear and Jason Sudeikis and uh, Paul Shear's wife. Oh, I can't remember her name right now. But they talk about. They just go review bad, like bad movies. They talk about it, and they go through the whole movie. And they talked about one movie called I, I believe it's called Safe House, and it's uh, a Nicholas Sparks movie. And if you don't know who Nicholas Sparks is, he's the author of like The Notebook and those kind of movies. And it after they talked about it, I went and I watched it and that movie is is pretty is really insane. So if you're looking for a bad movie to watch, Safe House. I think it's called Safe House. No, let me look it up. I, I think there's another movie called Safe House. There's like a lot of movies with the word safe in it, so it's almost impossible to tell. Oh, it's called Safe Haven. Yeah, I don't... For some reason, the the name rings a bell to me, but I couldn't tell you anything about the film. Safe House is a Denzel Washington movie, which I have watched, and you should watch that. I think it's uh, Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds. Watch that if you want a good movie, and watch Safe Haven if you want a bad movie that's... It's, like, so bad it's fun to watch. What is usually like if somebody asks you what's a bad movie to watch that I would still enjoy? What's your usual go-to answer? Is it is it Safe Haven or do you have other ones? Oh, Safe Haven is so it's crazy. Like the ending is crazy, the premise is crazy. That's one I like a lot, but man, this is tough. I I love Critters. I don't know if you ever heard of this the horror movie Critters. I think that's like a really bad movie. Killer Clowns from Outer Space is kind of... I don't know if Killer Clowns from Outer Space is a bad movie or it's just very cheesy. Just, is cheesy movies bad movies to you? They can be. 
Like, there could still be a cheesy movie with the redeeming quality to it. So they're not necessarily in the exact same vein, but a lot of times, like, that Venn diagram is pretty close together, those two circles. Oh, Wicker Man? You you have to watch Wicker Man. That's a bad movie That's that I would suggest that people would enjoy. Most Nicolas Cage movies, you know... I would say are not works of art, but they're so enjoyable. True. Well, a good portion of them. Some are just terrible. Like I remember watching season of the witch, which I think came out in 2011 and it had a, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Who was the guy who played the first Hellboy, and he was in sons of our anarchy. Uh, Oh, I want to say Ron Perlman. Yeah. Yeah. So it starred Nick Cage and Ron Perlman as like a crusade era knights and they are like escorting this witch to i forget it's like a tower or 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 like a monastery or something to be exercised and it was just it was not a good film uh i feel like i feel like i've seen that movie does oh man it does it have witches in it it has a witch, and then you see, like, demons every now and again. That's about it. Oh, man. But Face Off, if you're looking for another Nicolas Cage movie, Face John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, I don't, I can't beat that. There's a new Nicolas Cage movie that's actually pretty good. It's almost like as if they took Five Nights at Freddy's and turned it into a, uh, turned it into a horror film. It's called Willy's Wonderland. And the funny thing is, Nick Cage's character does not say a, a single word in the entire movie. Like, it's all just facial expressions and stuff. He His character does not speak. Oh, have you seen it? Have you seen it? or? No, I saw a review of it. Uh, I do want to actually see it, though, because I hear it's pretty interesting. I do feel like I could watch Nicolas Cage on mute and still, like, feel his voice presence inside me. Like his face acting is that strong, so I wonder if it if it resonates. I don't know. Maybe it does. I don't even know where I can watch it. I I don't think it's uh, I maybe it's on Shutter or something. But I have no idea how to watch it. I just watched a review on it like two days ago and made me excited to want to see it because it sounded like it was actually pretty good despite being kind of cheesy. Well, I'll definitely have to check. If you find out where to watch it, let me know. Let us all know. Will do. My usual go-to movie. So I have two. I have like an ironically bad film and then like an actually bad film. So my ironically bad film is Kung Fury. And like it is a terrible movie, but they perp- like it's a joke. They purposely made it to be bad. So it's like they're letting us in on the joke by showing us this terrible film. And it parodies like the whole 80s kung fu uh, buddy cop genres that we saw. And it even it even like mimics or not mimics, but mocks the technology of the day because they, they have like the uh, VHS tracking feature will randomly show up on the on the film and whatnot as if you were watching a movie in the 80s. So it was it's pretty funny and pretty bad. An unironic or not unironically bad one, the new guy with DJ Qualls. I want to say it came out in two thousand two. It was one of my favorite movies when I was in high school. Then I 
like a few years ago, I caught it uh, like on Netflix or streaming or something. I was like, oh yeah, I remember liking this. And that movie does not hold up. Speaking of DJ Qualls, he is in this other movie that's so bad it's good. It's called All About Steve, and it stars Sandra Bullock, and she's this like crazy girl. She goes on a date with Bradley Cooper's character, and they never go on a second date, but she becomes obsessed with him. And he's a traveling news anchor, and she kind of just follows him throughout the country, and she gets in these crazy situations. But it's it's like so bad. The acting's crazy in it. And the the interesting part is Sandra Bullock made this movie the same year that Blindside came out. So it, both those movies came out in the same year. And she won an Academy Award for Blindside. Didn't Halle Berry have something like that happen where she won a Razzie? Like for two separate movies, but she won a Razzie and an Academy Award the same year? Like, was it Monsters Ball and Catwoman, I believe? Oh, I don't know. I know she won a Razzie for Catwoman. And for all our listeners, watch, if you can't watch all of Catwoman, I know it's like a tough watch. Just watch the basketball scene where she is playing basketball. Uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but she's playing basketball against the lead actor of this movie. And they don't ever show her full dribbling the ball or like full wide shots of her. But you can tell like when the double steps in and when it's Halle Berry, because they cut to just the feet and it's, it's insane. Catwoman is, is another insane movie. Yeah. That one before superhero films are good. I guess we talked a lot about things that aren't full metal alchemist. Maybe we should jump right into full metal alchemist now. Yeah. Let's talk about something good. Exactly. Not a bad movie. Not a bad... Well, except for that that live-action adaptation that Netflix put together a few years ago. Otherwise, very good franchise, Full Metal Alchemist. So today we're only doing one episode. A lot of it is because as we get to the end, and I've mentioned this before, but you know, as we get to the end, uh, some episodes just pair better with others. So, for example, last week's episode, like they paired well because... They both dealt with Mustang, Hunting Down, Envy, and whatnot. And there are a few other episodes that do that well. So we're kind of jumping around to try to make the flow work better rather than like abruptly cutting off an episode and then having you guys wait a week until we discuss again. So yeah, so today we're just doing one. Uh, but we'll, 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 we'll uh, give you guys some of your time's worth and dive deep into them. And this week we are doing episode 55, I believe the adult way of life. So... We start with Ed and his team, team comprising of um, Scar, Ed, Riza Hawkeye, and Mustang. They are lost, and Mustang and Ed are just going at it. Mustang is definitely the cooler cat of it, and while Ed is, you know, exploding in anger as he normally does because he has a short fuse, and I just said short, and Edward Elric, that would have made him mad. But anyway, so Mustang is like making fun of Ed for being lost. And then Ed's like, well, you know, I wouldn't have been lost if I didn't have to come back to find you. And Mustang says that he didn't ask for help and that Riza had everything under control and blah, blah, blah. But uh, behind them, Scar and Riza are walking together and Scar scolds them for being so loud because they might attract attention from the enemy. 
Hawkeye actually thanks Scar for helping him bring Mustang back to himself. And Scar says that her gratitude is unnecessary. He did look taken aback by the uh, comment, though. The tank continues firing, but it stops once it is revealed to the operation team that is running the tank that uh, Briggs soldiers have taken over the operation command center. The Briggs soldiers have also uh, taken the General Kremen hostage, and they're starting to take over the entire command center. Uh, the tank was largely just a distraction, so the, the explosion of the tank was meant to cover up the sound of Azumi Curtis using alchemy to dig her way into Central's command. Uh, jumping back, we see Olivier and everybody trying to fight the mannequins and sloth. A central soldier who is in that room gets words that Briggs has been taken over, or, or that Briggs has taken over Central Command, rather. Olivier jumps on the phone to tell Buccaneer not to open the gate for any reason whatsoever. These mannequins are dangerous, and they cannot let a single one of them leave. They've got to kill them all and handle them here. And, of course, you know, Buccaneer is excited to hear that he gets to kill some little non-human beings. Olivier and Armstrong continue to fight. Sloth is regenerating, or Olivier and Alex, they're both Armstrongs, rather. Uh, Sloth regenerates, and he runs at both Armstrongs, and he manages to get a, a, a slight hit on them, which kind of disorients them a bit. Sloth is dedicated to kill them, more specifically Olivier, as that was his orders, but he is also wanting to kill Alex, because Alex injured him badly and all that good stuff. The soldiers are able to slow Sloth down as he runs by using like a chain to hold him back. Uh, the central soldiers ask the Armstrongs to leave and escape. Alex refuses to run from this fight as he did in Ishval. He wants to stay and fight for what's right. The chain breaks and Sloth goes in for the attack, but is stopped by a stone fist coming out of the wall. The fist is created by none other than Izumi Curtis. Apparently a buccaneer asked her to help the Armstrongs. Azumi is able to flip Sloth over with little issue, and she tosses him all the way to Zeig, who then punches him into the wall. Uh, both Armstrongs are actually very, very in awe about their abilities to fight. Alex is also just impressed by the muscles and strength of Zeig. The two team up to fight Sloth, and they successfully finish him off by punching him and then knocking him onto a spike that impales him. Sloth begins to deteriorate, as we've seen in the past with other homunculi when they start to die. And his, you know, he, he in a very Sloth-like way, he talks about how dying is such a pain, but so is living such a pain, everything's such a pain. The fight has clearly taken its toll on Alex, but he recovers pretty quickly after some reassurance from Sieg. Olivier is a bit overwhelmed too and needs to recover. And the central soldiers continue to take on the mannequins. Olivier realizes that she is talking to Izumi Curtis. The Armstrongs are very roughed up, but they continue to fight. They believe that they can't just leave the children to fight alone, that they have some responsibility to continue the fight as well. We go underground, we see Hohenheim and Father. 
Honheim mocks father for being so stoic. He used to be so lively when he was the dwarf in the flask. Honheim points out that the seven deadly sins are a must for humanity. Now, if you have too much of one, it can destroy you, but you must have them to truly understand what it means to be human. Father attempted to purge himself of them by creating the homunculus. This upsets father, and he begins to attack using alchemy. But Hohenheim is able to defend himself with his own alchemy. It was as if he was just brushing off the attacks, which is kind of funny. Hohenheim wonders why father made the homunculi and ex- insist that they refer to him as father. After all, father is not really his real name. Granted, we never get a real name for him other than dwarf in the flask. And he, he looks back to when he was the dwarf in the flask, and he used to scoff at the ideas of community and family. So why did he bother creating one? Apparently, all he wanted was what humans had, a family. This revelation seems to stun Father. Father then submerges into the ground using alchemy. Hohenheim is a little confused as to where he went, but then he appears right behind Hohenheim and sticks his hand into Hohenheim's body. He begins to absorb Hohenheim's philosopher's stone, but then he suddenly stops. Father realizes that something isn't right, and Father isn't sure exactly what was done to him. But Hohenheim does say that he is prepared to fight, and he says something about uh, Father is going to be fighting us, uh, plural. We see Yoki, Marco, Heinkel, and Alphonse. They're in the car, stuck in a pothole somewhere in Central City, and they're trying to move the car out of a pothole. Nothing really interesting happens in the scene, but in the background we do see a man with a sword walking by. In Central Command... Buccaneer and Briggs soldiers are making great ground against the soldiers and the mannequins, and they are about to take the main gate. We see a general trying to stop the mannequins. He's shooting at them. He's saying that, you know, you're not supposed to attack me. You're supposed to, you know, follow my orders. Uh, the, the, you know, I, I don't remember what he calls them, but he essentially alludes to father told us that this isn't going to happen to me or this shouldn't be happening. And before he is taken over by the mannequins, Azumi saves him, but not because he's a good man or he deserves to be saved. Azumi's wanting more information from him. Olivier arrives in the Fuhrer's office, but she has no desire to sit in the chair. They find a secret doorway in the Fuhrer's office that may lead down to Father. You see this long set of staircases descending. Buccaneer and his team have successfully taken over the main gate, and we hear different Briggs teams talk about the gates that they've taken over, the south, the north, so on and so forth. Everybody begins to celebrate until they hear a voice over the radio. It is none other than the Fuhrer. He has returned, and he says he has taken command, and he is going to get rid of the rebels. And of course, the central soldiers are happy because they are loyal to him, unlike the Briggs soldiers. Uh, at first they figure, well, he'll flank them or he'll do a sneak attack, but sure enough, he is approaching them from the front gate, walking right up, uh, as if he's like confident that, (laughs) that he has nothing to worry about. And that's where the episode ends. So what was some of your, um, some of your takeaways on this? Azumi is awesome. Yeah. I, I think that was my biggest takeaway. Um, you know she's strong. You know she can kick some butt. But when she went into that fight, and she kind of just like, not even breaking a sweat, throwing sloth around. 
I know she kind of comes at the tail end, but it's just like, she's like, oh, this is just a Tuesday for me. This is what it feels like. Yeah, she did not seem disturbed at all by the whole process. Like, she just attacked him, and then as Sloth runs, she just grabs him and flips him, and that's that. Like, there was, she didn't break a sweat to handle any of that. And I'm like, and it's not even how great of an alchemist she is. Like, she's a great alchemist. I think we all, all can agree on that. This is physical strength. Like, or she's using sloth strength against him, but this isn't an alchemy thing. This is kind of her fighting training that she has that she's using to flip sloth over. Yep. And of course, Sieg joins in too. And I don't think I, I having a hard time remembering this. I don't think I've saw Sieg fight prior to this. I mean, I guess we assume he's strong because he is very large and burly and everything. But this is the first time I think we actually get to see him fight. But he does join the fight. And what every time we've seen him, I feel like he's just kind of I don't want to say meek, but he's like that supportive. Husband, he's kind of in the back. He's very supportive of Azumi. He's taking care of her. He's running the meat shop. We never really seen him kind of like this uh, strong guy. And I, I love the scene. It's just like another great comical moment, kind of relieve uh, the action slightly, where it's him and Alex. Kind of, I don't want to say like it's a muscle off, but it's a, uh, I guess, an admiring of each other's muscles as they go back and forth hmm, yeah yeah that was kind of fun the whole admiration where they kind of both flex and we see their pec muscles like flex a little bit and stuff as they're both uh showing off their muscles and that they're equally as strong and then they both team up to finish off sloth i like it because i like because it it's it kind of shows how great alex armstrong is like how a gentle person he is. He's not like, I'm one-upping you. I have bigger muscles than you do, or I'm stronger than you are. He's like, you know, we both have great muscles, and we both can fight at the same time. It was this great admiration for each other. It was like they found uh, a new friend in each other, and it was a great moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like that they're both... They're both like very gentle giants, both Sieg and I, I like now I'm just thinking about it. Sieg and Azumi seem to mirror Alex and Olivia a lot in the fact that the women are definitely very strong, strong characters, strong willed and whatnot, whereas they're the, the husbands are physically strong, but their temperament tends to be a little bit more on the meek side. Like they don't fight unless they absolutely have to, despite being super muscular. It that is just like it is kind of well. It feels like I mean, well, Azumi and C are like married, so because I, I was gonna say like they seem to have found this great balance of how it is instead of kind of being like butting heads they found a way to like make the flow work well i feel like olivia and alex have just figured out a great flow with each other 
yeah, I think it's just that sibling rivalry that they've probably dealt with since the time they were children. But their reaction when Azumi walks in, she uh, makes that fist. I, I love when they do alchemy and it makes like giant fists out of stone that just pop out of the ground. Mm-hmm. But that fist comes out, hits Sloth, and a little door comes out of the fist and it opens and these mannequins fall out that have been giving everyone a hard time. And Azumi's just like, what's up, everyone? She kind of steps out. She's like, she's like, you need help? She doesn't even say you need help. She's like, you know, stay back. I got this. And the face on Alex and Olivier is priceless. Yes, they just are in a gut. They are in awe over the fight. Which I, I love. And like Azumi is like Captain Marvel of the Avengers, it feels like. She comes in, she's this powerhouse. And no one, it doesn't seem like someone, no one can stop her right now. Yeah, she is definitely like one of the strongest. Um, but like, even before Azumi comes in, I think like a great point of this fight was do you kind of see Olivier give a different side of her when she sees that the soldiers are risking their lives to hold Sloth back and they're like, Sloth's after you. You need to run away, and we're going to hold him back as much as we can, but you guys run as far as you can. You see this look in her face where she's like, wow, these people who I was kind of screaming at and yelling at them a minute ago are now kind of risking their lives to protect me, and I'm not even their general. Yes, they are protecting her, even though they have absolutely no reason to. Like they, they actually have orders to kill her, and yet they they don't. But yeah, and it's I I think maybe we're gonna start seeing a softer side of her. I mean, not too soft, but I do think she's got like her little heart grew. Man, her heart grew like three sizes that day, or whatever. <laughs> But, like, that whole fight, and I'm kind of glad we got, I feel like a majority of this episode was that fight, because we've seen snippets of it, is it snippets or tidbits of it, um, in the past couple episodes, you know, very little cutaways to the this fight, and now we get, like, this good chunk, and it's the good finisher of it, and it seems like all the fights are wrapping up. Yeah, they are, like... Well, I mean, obviously the main big takeaway or the big fight is supposed to be against, um, it's supposed to be against uh, Father and the Monkey Lice. So, yeah, I think they're going to have to start wrapping up all these smaller fights so that we can get to that one. I guess having our, like, what, Avengers Endgame moment. And that's what I thought was going to happen because we've got Hohenheim and Father. Um, having kind of their duel off, which is a uh, very, uh, it feels a very philosophical action-y duel where they're kind of going back and forth with their words. And then uh, father does his little disappearing act and stabs Hohenheim. And he kind of gives a speech about, I want 
I want to be more than human or humans are just like this at this point. I want to be better than that. And I feel like that's what this is all about. I, in my mind, at least that's what I'm trying to put these clues together. I'm feeling like this is what it's all about to push father to the next stage, whatever it is past what humans are. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be like we see in one of the earlier episodes, how they talk about how, um, uh, how he looks down on humans, but then father says that, well, he doesn't look down on humans in the same way that a human doesn't even, you know, contemplate, doesn't look at an ant and contemplate whether he's superior to the ant. He just, because it's just not worth his time. He doesn't contemplate whether he's superior to humans. So he definitely just sees himself as being better and wanting to be better. And that's why he created the homunculi. Like he expelled the sins out of his body and, that's what created the monkey life because I guess he figures having those sins are weaknesses, you know, lust, greed, envy, et cetera, et cetera. So if he can get rid of them all, then he can, he can achieve perfection. But we also see that as, you know, Hohenheim mentions, and if we look at previous episodes, that when he was a dwarf in a flask, he was very energetic and animated, but now he's like very stoic. So it could be because he expelled those, those uh, vices out of him. And I do wonder, like, I guess, I don't know if in his mind he was always like, I can always reabsorb these things. Like, the vices are still there. Like, we saw him reabsorb greed back a whole bunch of episodes ago. So I I, I wonder if in his mind he was like, well, if I ever need them, they're here. But they're gone. Like, what's left? Just pride? Uh, in the, so let's see. Four, oh, and, yeah. And greed. And, and wrath, because the fear is returned. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always forget he's, he's one of them. Yeah, he's a weird homunculus in the fact that he's, like, human-based and everything, and he doesn't have the, we, as far as we could tell, he doesn't have the healing ability either. Um, because, I, well, I mean, I'm assuming he doesn't, because we see him age just like anybody else, and. The other homunculus, they like their cells keep regenerating, so they constantly look. I don't know, like they're in their mid twenties or whatever. But yeah, I wonder if he always thought maybe I could reabsorb these people or not these uh, attributes back into me, but they're kind of gone. And or maybe he needs to expel all this to rise to the next next stage. Yeah, I think it, I'm guessing it's more of the latter. Like I think he thinks that this is the only way he can become better. It's by expelling all of the negative energy and becoming positive. And I think his goal is to somehow ascend beyond, like, I think he already thinks he's ascended beyond humanity. I think he's trying to get to the next step because clearly he's already like from his other conversations, it's clear that he already thinks that he's better than humans. So what else does he have to do? I think he's trying to like, there's some mountain type. He's trying to reach like becoming a demigod or something. I don't know. I do wonder, because I th- I don't know, I, I don't know for you, but for me, the big reveal of this episode was that Hohenheim has a Philosopher's Stone in him. Did we know that already, or yeah. and I forgot? Or Yeah, yeah, because um, he's mentioned it a few times, so after after we see that flashback of how Hohenheim, of how Father was created, he, he says that half of the souls, uh, what is it, a million souls or so, so half of that were in... Hohenheim and then half of them are in father so 
in theory, Hohenheim is at the same power level as Father uh, because they both have the same amount of souls, theoretically. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, oh, gosh, he also mentions that he's a living philosopher's stone to Alphonse, and he mentions it to Edward as well in the uh, Canama, uh, what is it, those slums. So, yeah, he's mentioned it a few times. Oh, I always thought of it as, like, I am a philosopher's stone. Like, it, like it, it, my body is a stone. Right. Well, Not that there's a stone in me. Oh, yeah. No, his body is a stone, but, like, it can be absorbed out of him, I guess. Like, because really a stone is just a collection of souls. So all he has to, all Father has to do is just, like, rip the souls out of him. But something goes wrong. Like, he sticks his hand in there. And Hohenheim has done something because father can't do what he wants to do. Yeah. He almost looks shocked or, or confused or something or in pain after a while. And then he removes his hand and something's happened. We don't know what, but something happened. I do feel like this has something to do with Ed and Al, but I'm not sure. Because I'm just like, I don't know, maybe he passed it down to his kids. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't. Well, he couldn't have passed it down to his kids because he still has got all that power. But I don't know. I, in my mind, I feel like it's something to do with Ed and now. Probably. Hohenheim, I don't think. Like, it's, I'm always trying to figure out who's stronger because technically, you would think that Hohenheim's stronger than Father because they got the same amount of souls as a result of the Xerxes experiment. But granted, we don't know how much Hohenheim's used, but we know that, you know, he's pinched, you know, uh, father's at least pinched off, you know, we don't know what size, but seven philosopher's stones out of his body to create homunculi. So he must have less power comparatively. I do wonder if it's this thing, because... Hohenheim does kind of give father that rebuttal about the losing all your emotions or when they're talking about that. He's like, you know, but you're kind of missing the point of being human or, you know, it's not good to let go of all your emotion. And I wonder if it's something about like how father has embraced his humanity. Uh, his like, you know, he is kind of a immortal beating being. And I wonder if he's embraced this, uh, the human side of him. Like he's found love. He was able to love and he has children and, you know, he wants to help people. And I wonder if that part of him makes him stronger. Possibly. Cause I do think, but at the same time, Hohenheim started his life as a human, whereas father was always a homunculus. And I mean, it seems like he had some understanding of what human life was like, but he never actually lived a human life. So I think, you know, he's coming in as a blank slate and doesn't really care for humanity and sees himself as above, whereas Father never really asked to have the himself turned into a Philosopher's Stone. I mean, not Father. Hohenheim never asked for him to be turned into a Philosopher's Stone. He's still, I think, human at his core. I and do. so, yeah, he still has the emotions. Yeah, I wonder if it's this embracing of, uh, you know, finally, maybe this finally acceptance of both sides of him. Like he's like, I need this human side, and now I'm this philosopher stone side. And instead of trying to be two different worlds, 
I combined them. Like, the best of both worlds. He's like Hannah Montana-ing this thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's... I don't know. I mean, I like that whole philosophical debate they have because they really do dive into what makes you human because you do think like, yeah, that would make him a better person by getting rid of his vices and focusing only on the good or whatever and stuff like that. But, you know, Hohenheim does bring up a good point that those frailties or weaknesses of humans are actually what makes them, you know, special. Sure, and I enjoy this whole kind of break from a lot of the fighting we've been getting. And it just it is interesting that it's between Father and Hohenheim that they are because if this was Ed, oh, we'd be jumping around um, fighting each other all over the place. But since it's Father and Hohenheim, kind of both evenly matched people, it's it's like they're like we have to take this fight to the next level. And that's like mm-hmm. the intellectual part of it. Yes, I found it funny how father was, or not, yeah, father was attacking Hohenheim using the alchemy, but Hohenheim was essentially able to deflect it. But like we saw some points where he just like dodged a spike or whatever. But then there were times where he just kind of, I wouldn't even say outwit it, but he just casually went, went along. So like we see him make the, we see uh, Father make those two hands and smash Hohenheim, and then Hohenheim just creates a door and walks out from between them. Yeah, they're so evenly matched. It's because they are—they're exactly the same. Like half went in them, half went in the other, and they both had a lot of time on this earth to kind of hone their skills more. Yeah, they—they they have. I mean, they're—I mean. Technically, I guess Hohenheim's older because what he was a. Then again, I guess we don't know exactly how old the homunculus is. Like we know, we know when he was created or when he showed up in our physical plane. But who's not to say that he didn't exist exist on like a medical met, medical a metaphysical plane for like a million years prior to being created and brought into a physical form in the in the. Uh, earlier Xerxes years. But I do feel like Hohenheim's training didn't really take off. Like he was that slave, I want to say 23, but I feel like that's wrong. But he didn't, once he met, you know, the dwarf in the glass father, it feels like from that moment, he really became an alchemist. And before then he was kind of more sweeping Right. Well, it looks like Xerxes was probably like what we saw, what we've seen historically with, say, um, those ancient civilizations where, you know, there was no, there wasn't really a path, I guess, or even if there was, it was a really difficult path to go from being a humble slave to being, you know, uh, an artisan or or something like that, or, or an alchemist or scientist or whatever, like, if you were born a slave, you're a slave until the day you die uh, for like 99% of the people. So I think at that point, when we even we see that conversation that they have the first time when they meet, you know, Hohenheim doesn't seem to have much thought about, well, what am I, what, what are my next steps in life? What am I going to do next? Like he just assumes, hey, I'm going to be a slave. That's, 
that's that's my life and then yeah ho and i or father's like well don't you want to be free and kind of asks him that and i think yeah father helped train him and kind of create a path for him to become a, a free man yeah so yeah but i do feel like at the end of the day they are around the same power level yeah just raw power because they both have a philosopher's stone um so the raw power they're they're equal. I think their difference may be in their fighting style or, or how far they're willing to go to fight each other. So I think, you know, they're both motivated differently. Um, father is definitely selfish. He cares only about his goal. He doesn't care who dies when he's trying to reach it or whatever. Like it's all for the greater good, whatever his thought of the greater good is. And I think his greater good really is only to his own benefit. He's not, it's not to anybody else's benefit. It's not like a sacrifice a few to save the many. I think it's like sacrifice of sacrifice the many to, to save me kind of thing. Whereas I think, you know, Hohenheim is a father. He cares about people. Uh, he, he, he loved his wife. Uh, I mean, she's dead now, but he loved her to the end and, I think, you know, their two different motivations also affect their fighting style. Yeah, and I I can't... I'm excited to see kind of where this is leading us. Because um, we got a whole bunch of more episodes to go. So I don't know if they're going to be fighting father anytime soon. Because I've... And this episode felt like a video game in some senses where you feel like you're about to get to that final boss and then one more mini boss pops up. And it's like, hey, you got to fight me, too. And we find that in Bradley shows up kind of out of nowhere. And I, I think we all knew he wasn't dead. Like that train blew up. and You know, we knew he was still out there. So him showing up is like. Now we got another mini boss yeah. to go. Through. I think I forget the. I think the trope actually has a name, but it's the whole idea that if you don't see the body or if you don't see the death, then they're not actually dead. So when people kept saying, "Well, we haven't found his body, we haven't found his body," it was like strongly hinting that he was still alive somehow, somewhere. And then, yeah, now we finally get to see him. I do wonder if this is going to be an all hands on deck. Like, is this what's going to bring all our characters together, or is this going to be another? Uh side fight because some of her characters are in the tunnel and then some of her characters are up on land so i don't know which way it's gonna go yeah that's what i'm thinking it's probably everybody who's already up in that area or up in the in central command are probably going to join the fight but i don't think like i don't think edward or anybody else is going to backtrack to like 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 father is their ultimate goal, so I don't think anybody's going to backtrack just to deal with deal with uh, the Fuhrer. But people who are already yeah, there, which is going to be a great fight. Well, we got the Armstrongs, Azumi, her husband, Al, the Chimera team, like half the Chimera team, Marco. I don't know who else is on land. We have brig soldiers, and then of course we have buccaneer right there. You know, obviously, here is going to deal first with the people on the front lines, which are the people who took the main gate. So buccaneer and his team. So yeah, which is exciting. 
I'm I'm very excited. I I'm just like always anticipating every next episode. I'm like this is the big fight, and it's gonna come up soon. So I'm really getting excited for the big fight. I just feel it coming. Yes, I know it's it's. I'm getting excited too because I'm like, yes, it's around the corner. I know it's around the corner. We're gonna have this big fight, and it's gonna be great. And everybody is gonna be in central because. I mean, we pretty much all the big players we know are already in Central, so everybody's going to be in Central and joining in this big fight, whoever it is against. I mean, it, presumably it's going to be Father, since we know he's the big bad, but I don't know, maybe he has uh, underlings or he creates super mannequins or something like that to fight. Yeah, yes, but we're getting closer, and I'm getting more excited as the time goes by. Yeah, me too. And there's three. Let's see. So Sloth is dead. Three, technically four, if you want to count Father. Homunculi left. We have Wrath, who is, um, who we, we know exactly where he is. He is approaching Central and about to take it over again. Pride is presumably somewhere. I'm guessing he's heading back to help Father or something, because I think the last time we saw Pride was he was consuming uh, Kimberly after Alphonse and his group escaped. And then uh, Greed is somewhere. I think we, we saw that he was wandering over to Central because he wants to take, or he wants to ruin Father's plans, not for any kind of like, you know, uh, altruistic reason, but because he wants whatever it is that Father is trying to get because, you know, he's Greed, so. Yeah, so we're down just to the, the best of the best of, or homunculi, you know, is the strongest that are left. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is true, because greed, I mean, yeah, these are the ones I like the most. I mean, lust and envy are all right, but, like, the, well, I don't know, I wouldn't really say pride is a brawler. Uh, Wrath, you know, we don't really, aside from his ultimate eye, we don't really see him do anything magical or anything, like, like with the other ones where we see, like, you know, a, a superhuman speed or or uh, um, being able to create like sharp nails or whatever like he's just really really talented fighter plus of course having his uh, ultimate eye giving him the ability to kind of see through things that he would ordinarily struggle to see I do think with uh, wrath and pride it's those those fighters that it feels like they're doing effortless like, I don't when I don't remember seeing really Bradley go, you know, full force like we've seen Envy go, you know, or I haven't really seen Pride. Pride's always kind of just mm-hmm. seems chill to me, I, and I feel like they're still at level one, and I, maybe we're gonna get to see them push to like level two, or we've seen a whole bunch of I guess we've been calling them like true forms. Like we saw Gluttony's true form and Envy's kind of true form. I do wonder well, and I mean Pride's true form is what, those shadows, I guess? Or do you think there's another thing beyond that? No, it's just those shadows. Um, we saw him in the tunnel and whatnot when Hohenheim reached out to him and stuff. But yeah, it's just the, the shadows are his true form, but you can't apparently you can't exist outside of the tunnels. Or you can either live in the tunnels or he can live inside of the Selene body. But I do wonder it. if we're going to, I don't know. I feel like 
that's such a hindrance to us. But maybe we'll get more to that. I, I don't know. We're getting closer and closer. And we're only like a few layers away from getting to, to everyone getting to Father. Indeed, we are. And of course, the Edward and his team are on the way too. So I think, I mean, yeah, what's her name? Uh, Mei Chang is somewhere in there as well. Mei Chang and the other Chimera and whatnot, they're up further ahead because they didn't turn around to go find Mustang. So uh, yeah, everybody's going to be running into him soon. Hohenheim's already there also. So I can't wait to yeah, see Yeah, me too. Next. No, I oh, feel like, you, uh, you know, this was a little shorter of an episode, but a lot of action happened. This is a very action-packed episode with the uh, Armstrong, Sloth, Azumi, everyone fighting Sloth fight. And it was a great wrap-up to that. And now we're going to get in this kickoff to the Bradley fight. So, you know, short episode, a little shorter episode on our side too, but... I really think it's going to pay off next week. Yep, next week's going to probably be a good one. Those two episodes kind of dovetailing uh, each other pretty well, and sort of the following one. So we're going to have a great time. But, uh, but yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Um, I look forward to talking to you guys next week. I look forward to being on a regular microphone and equipment. And as always, I'm Jimmy. I'm Jason. Bye. Bye.